This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 253, and we are recording on October 13th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Sharifa Williams, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Thank you for joining us this week. Yay! I'm very excited (laughs) to be here and to talk about some books with you. Yes, Jen is out this week doing fancy new house things, Mm -hmm. Um, and Sharifa is our, for those of you who don't know, I should probably tell <laughs> you. I'm I was just, just random little, person. You know, I found her on the street, so <laughs> that was fun. Um, no, Sharifa is our managing <laughs> editor and also co-hosts our science fiction and fantasy pod- podcast, SFF Yeah, with Jen. So, hey. yeah. Yeah. That's and it. Now I'm here. That's my story. You are. <laughs> have you? You've been on this show before, right? I yeah. have. I think I've been yeah. on at least once, so... Yeah, after 250 episodes, I stopped forgetting what yeah. has happened. So I don't <laughs> oh know. Oh my goodness, yes. I don't know what's going on. Good grief. Okay, so how the show works. Um, as I mentioned, it's a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you can email us your reading recommendation requests to get, what is it? Get booked at bookriot.com. I don't know my email address, doesn't matter. <laughs> get booked at bookriot.com. Or you can drop your request in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line. Or, you know, if you're using the email, if you use the form, just put it in big letters in the first line of it. So we'll see it. Uh, we might email you back if we've already answered your question on air or if it's time sensitive and we are not going to get to it on time. So that's why we ask for your email address. Okay, we don't have any feedback for this episode, so we're just going to get right in it. Um, Sharifa's going to read our first question, which is actually an Insiders fast track question. If you join Book Riot Insiders, you can have your questions submitted to the show, get fast track, so you bump the line. So you can go to insiders.bookriot.com to check that out. Um, okay, All go, right. go, Gadget Sharifa. <laughs> well, this first question comes from Heather, and Heather says, I'm looking for an atmospheric autumn Halloween read, think corn mazes, pumpkins, ghosts, creepy things happening, etc. I'm a wuss when it comes to scary stuff, so I typically stick to middle grade or YA when I read creepy books. I've read Dead Voices and Small Spaces by Catherine Arden and love them. Anything similar to those two would be great. Okay, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, 
but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, Shifra, do you want to go first? Creepy YA? Yeah, I'll talk about some creepy YA tis this <laughs> season. So my recommendation is Undead Girl Gang by Lily Anderson. And I should say this book comes with a trigger warning for mention of suicide. And I would say that if I was a rereader, I would be reading this one again to get into the Halloween spirit and to indulge in my love of all things witchy. So the story follows Mila Flores, who's also the narrator. And she's a smart, sarcastic teen who's into all things occult. And Mila had a pretty normal high school situation going on, which is to say she was really annoyed with everyone and living that super unpopular life. Totally, totally relate. Um, Relatable. (laughs) Yeah. So her home life isn't much better because her family thinks she's really over-emotional and they don't really take her struggles seriously. And the thing she's struggling with at the start of the book and the thing that's making her feel even more alone in the world is the death of her best friend, Riley. So Riley is the only person at school that really got Mila, that that made her feel seen, and they did everything together. They also know everything about each other, which is why Mila is pretty sure that Riley did not die by suicide. It just does not line up with what Mila knows about her bestie. And so, of course, Mila is determined to get to the bottom of this mystery at any cost. And making Riley's death even more confusing is the fact that some popular girls from school have also recently been found dead, which, you know, for a quiet suburban town is statistically strange. So Mm. (laughs) Mila does what any teen would do when faced with a sort of sleuthing opportunity. She she grabs an off-limits grimoire and gets herself to the cemetery and reanimates the corpses of these three freshly dead girls. 
So now Mila Riley and these two mean girls are going to have to work together to get to the bottom of things. And they really do have their work cut out for them because none of the victims remembers anything about the knights or their deaths. Um, and Mila somehow has to keep the fact that there are these three undead girls running around town a secret, which is a really hard thing to do when you're dealing with teens who want to do what they want to do. And this is definitely in, in camp, campy fun. And I don't think you're going to be scared by anything that happens here. It's got creepy elements, but it's not on its face creepy or horror. But it'll definitely invoke that fall vibe. And it also mm -hmm. features a fat girl and a great story about friendship and grief. There's lots of diversity on the page. And I just love recommending this book because it has something for everyone with that mystery element, a bit of a romantic subplot, a fun caper. There's a cool older character, which I always love. And of course, there's really witchy fantasy business. So again, that was Undead Girl Gang by Lily Anderson. All right. I picked Saw Kill Girls by Claire Legrand, which I kind of pitch a little bit is like it, like Stephen King's It, mm. but if it were a feminist teenage revenge novel kind of <laughs> um so it takes place on an island called Sawkill rock which is off the coast of the east coast of the u.s it feels very much like maine it's very like spooky there's lots of horses and cliffs and horses who go off cliffs it's mm. creepy Blech. yeah um so there are three main characters marion who is a new girl to Sawkill rock which is, has like a little village um small town on it She's a new girl. Her mother is a, um, I think she's a house cleaner and she works for some of the wealthy families. And there's like wealth on this island, like old New England money. Marion's not wealthy. Her father has recently died and her and her sister and her mother are just trying to like keep it together. And then Zoe is a bit of a pariah. She is the daughter of the police chief, which, you know, is never a popular <laughs> position to be in when you're the child of a police officer in a tiny town. <laughs> Um, she's also one of the only girls of color on the island, um, and her best friend Thora has recently gone missing. And she, Zoe, figures out that that's kind of like normal on this island that teenage girls go missing every couple of years as just a matter of of fact. And uh, the islanders put it off to like, oh, they ran to the mainland, they got bored, whatever. You know, they ran off with a boyfriend, they had an accident and fell off the cliffs. It, they're like just spaced out enough that it's not suspicious, but frequent enough that it is suspicious. And she's the only one who has decided to continue pursuing Thora's disappearance, even after the town has decided that she, you know, ran off or, or jumped off a cliff or whatever it is, excuse that they've given themselves. And then the third main character is Val, who is the queen bee. She is like this beautiful, wealthy girl whose family has been on the island for hundreds of years. And she has this like awful, deep secret about what is happening to these girls. And so the three of them kind of clash in this really supernatural, creepy mystery, murder mystery it there's no clowns but there are like again the weird creepy horses <laughs> um and like you know an insidious evil from another dimension that may or may not be haunting this little town i don't know that's definitely what's happening though it is creepy and i'm also very much a wuss when it comes to scary stuff as i've said on the show like a million <laughs> times um and this was just um atmospheric and like seasonal enough to be great to read in the fall but it did not keep me up at night so it threads that needle quite nicely so that's saw kill girls by claire legrand Alrighty. 
Our next question is from uh, Christine, who says, I'm heading to a cabin in the woods with some friends on November 3rd. We're all voting by mail and hope to escape inevitable news cycles surrounding the election. Mm. And I'm looking... This is relatable. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking for something to bring with to set the mood. I've been trying to find a good horror or horror comedy book that's set in the woods, like The Ritual by Adam Neville or Blair Witch or really anything with spooky fall and woodsy vibes. I'll take any format, novel, novella, short story, whatever. Preferably supernatural horror. Gore is fine, but I'd rather avoid anything with rape in it alternatively if you've got a wreck for a good women loving women romance set around halloween or autumn i'll take that too okay sharifa what you got all right well uh, my love for haunted woods is almost as great as my love for haunted houses so i love this question and since you did mention horror comedy and supernatural horror i went with the twisted ones by t kingfisher which is this really wry, witty, and creepy story about a spooky house and the haunted woods surrounding it. So the story follows Mouse, who's our narrator, who has to go to her grandmother's home in, it sounds very fairy tale, in rural North Carolina. And Mouse is fresh from a breakup and heads to grandma's with only the companionship of her supremely stupid... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's the only way I could say it. Supremely stupid, but good boy, Bongo, who's a hound dog. And <laughs> I love Bongo so much. Uh, but Mouse never got along with her grandma, who's this sort of notoriously among the neighbors and everybody else who ever, who ever had the uh, un- misfortune to walk across her doorstep. She's just this foul human being. So she's, Mouse is none too pleased about how she has to clean up her deceased grandmother's hoarded junk and she's even less happy to experience some really unsettling bumps in the night and then mouse discovers some skeletons in the closet during her stay including this she comes across this sort of diary i guess written by her grandfather who might actually if i recall correctly be her step grandfather so anyway the diary talks about some really weird stuff specifically this green book he's he keeps talking about that he's been searching for and he thinks her grandma hid it and all this stuff and they obviously did not like each other very much even though they were married and there was all sorts of reasons for that and this book the green book and the weird events that mouse experiences during this stay at her grandmother's are all linked And then Mouse gets caught up in this sort of phenomenon, this event that she can't make sense of, thanks to Bongo, of course. But it appears that she is not the only one who knows there's something strange about the woods. And so she ends up enlisting the help of the great, hilarious characters who are her temporary neighbors. And I just love the characters in the story. I love Mouse. I feel like I'm being kind of predictable with my host of really snarky narrators. But I just I just love it. I, will, I love what I love. And this town goes, uh, she goes to is really full on fun characters. Like there's this goth barista. And there's this rough talking, no nonsense older woman who lives in a commune style setup with this burly dude and an artist who who has bipolar disorder. And that crew is particularly great. And my favorite part is that this story doesn't rely on a woman being gaslit to forward the plot, which I think mm. I'm just tired of altogether. I just found that really, really refreshing. And also the dog doesn't die 
I am not spoiling anything. Yes. It is literally mentioned in the first few pages. I think we all know we all care about that. So it was definitely, it was an act of kindness that this was mentioned right up front. And I think like, in fact, this story is surprisingly free of triggering content. There is some gruesome imagery, as you might imagine. This is a, a horror book. And there is some interesting content of a sexual nature, I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna leave it at that. And there's just some truly weird stuff. But I also found it sort of cozy in a weird way, like this intimate setting, this small cast of characters, and these random things like Mouse going to the coffee shop for a chat and some caffeine and drinking boozy tea with her, her neighbor Foxy. I just thought it was really fun. So yeah, great story, Haunted Woods. That was The Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher. All right, I picked Empire of Wild by Cherie Dimaline, which is kind of like a really horror-driven, twisted adult version of Little Red Riding Hood. Um, and mm. it's based on the Métis um, traditional story of the Rogaru, which is like this essentially a werewolf kind of creature um, that occurs, happens, comes into existence when a man in the uh, community betrays a woman or betrays his community ideals. He becomes this like werewolf and then the community has to come together to put it down. It's like very literal. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's about this um, woman named Joan who is a Métis. She has grown up in this community her whole life um, and she gets married to a man named Victor. They're married for like a year. They have one serious argument and then he like storms off into the woods, you know, to cool off, but he never comes back. And so the book opens about a year later when she is trying to decide if she needs to give up looking for him, if he's dead, like what, you know, and her, her relatives are like, you need to move on. He was never found, all of that kind of stuff. And then one night in a like, I think it's a Walmart parking lot, she sees a, re a revival tent that's gone up for like some some church is having some sort of event. And she's kind of staggers in on a whim and sees her husband is the preacher. And so, of course, she goes up to him and is like, what, what, what is wrong? You know, what is wrong with you? You know, and he completely denies knowing her, doesn't recognize her at all. And, you know, she's standing in front of him like, I know it's the same dude, like it's the dude, you know, but he does not know her. And so she um, goes back to her home and in discussing what's happening with her elders comes to realize that he's been turned into this this creature. Um, and so a lot of it, and so she like gathers, you know, community members, mostly like her 12 year old nephew and an elder woman who's super foul mouthed and amazing to figure out how to get him back. Um, and a lot of it t takes place in the woods, both literal and metaphorically, like there's a lot of hunting of other people in the woods, both by the werewolf creature and by other humans. There's a lot of like the woods of your mind, you know, it's all very mm. spooky. And uh, when he's living out his his werewolfness, the part of him that still knows who he is and who she is, is like trapped in this kind of woods in his mind. It's it's very layered and metaphorical, but also there are like actual woods and there's some blood and death and stuff. So because it's a werewolf, you know, what else do you want? Um, so yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. And this is a little bit newer. It came out last year uh, in September. Um, and it's great. Okay, so that's Empire of Wild by Cherie Dimaline. 
Demoline? Hmm, I don't know if I'm saying that right. It'll be in the show notes. Okay, next question. Oh, the Sharifa. Next question is from Charlene, who says, I'm a new homeschooling mom to a kindergartner. My thoughts go out to everybody. Mm. And I'm looking ahead to Thanksgiving. In the past, we've just focused on what the holiday me- uh, means to us and ignored the history, but now feels like the right time, especially since this may be our only year homeschooling. And I have no clue if they're still teaching the first Thanksgiving myth in schools. Hmm. I already have 1621, a new look at Thanksgiving and Squanto's journey, the story of the first Thanksgiving on my list. Anything else along these lines would be great. Also, anything showing Native American life from around this time or from the European settlers' point of view, as long as it doesn't paint them as heroes or saviors, mm-hmm, would also be welcome. Mm. Can you recommend any books on this theme? Okay. Do you want to go first? Should I go sure. first? Sure. You go first. Um, <laughs> my children are at this moment downstairs doing their virtual learning stuff. I'm not homeschooling by any means. I'm not involved in this situation at all. They're just on the computers. But like my heart goes out to you <laughs> and everyone else who is at home dealing with this right now. Um, okay. So I picked The Very First Americans by Kara Ashrose. And this is a most like a picture book. It's very differently a children's book. I kind of latched on to your, the part of your question about showing Native American life from around this time. And the very first Americans is about um, the different tribes in the continental U.S. around that era. Um, and there are a lot of maps and diagrams and what their lives were like, like on a very day-to-day level. Like, what did they do for fun? What did they eat? What were their homes like? Uh, where did they live? Um, so it's super, super basic and really, I think, easy for a kid, a kindergartner to ingest. And the maps and the diagrams are also pretty easy to understand. And I think pretty useful where you can point to like, you know, here's where we live. And it, this is actually the land of this tribe. And like, we have settled on the land of this tribe. So you can really kind of easily contextualize um, the idea of like how Thanksgiving is kind of a myth based on where you live yourself. Um, I will say that there's been pushback about the title, like the very first Americans. They're not they're not American. Like they're not Americans. They mm-hmm. were obviously these these are independent nations that existed long before America was even conceptualized. Um, certainly before it was actually a real thing. So the title's a little bit, but I think that it's pretty easy to explain that nuance to a kid. Like these people lived here before America existed. The title's a little goofy, but the information in it, I think is really, really great, especially for a child that age. So that's The Very First Americans by Kara Ashrose. Okay, well, I was definitely, I also latched on to the part about, you know, seeing Native Americans living their lives So I was definitely looking for a book written by a Native American for this one. And I landed on, I was first of all very surprised to find that there weren't that many options out there. So Mm. that's that for that. And I landed (laughs) on Giving Thanks, a Native American Good Morning Message. This is by Chief Jake Swamp. And it's illustrated by Irwin Printup Jr. And this is a picture book that's marketed to kids from preschool age to six years old. Seems like it's great for for most young readers. And it's a children's version of the Thanksgiving Address, which is a message of gratitude. And it's spoken, it's still spoken at ceremonial gatherings held by the Iroquois or Six Nations. And the book is written by Chief Jake Swamp and um, the illustrator Irwin Printup. They're both. Native American Chief Jake Swamp was an activist who promoted peace and conservation, and he also delivered the Thanksgiving address throughout the world, so obviously an expert on the subject. 
and also spoke at the United Nations about it. And he was born on the Aquasisne Mohawk Reservation and worked as a cultural advisor for the Mohawk Council of Aquasisne's Child and Family Services. And Erwin Printup Jr. is actually a Cayuga Bear Clan artist from Tuscarora Reservation. So it's coming from two people who, who know what they're talking about. And this isn't so much a history, uh, like I said, as much as it is an introduction to one Native American tradition that's, that's spoken at these ceremonial gatherings. And it's a way to remind kids that this sort of familiar concept of giving thanks that certainly in my education, I also don't know what they teach anymore in schools. It's been a very, very long time. But in my time in school, the idea of Thanksgiving and giving thanks was very much centered on pilgrims and and it was a thing that was in practice obviously long before they showed up. And I think it's just a great way to think about the earth, especially as we think about things like climate change. So we're bringing a lot of topical issues together, but to think about the earth and what it provides since that's at the center of giving thanks in this book. And I think it could be a great supplement to teaching kids about the history of that time in that it gives kids the opportunity to learn about Native Americans unattached to colonizers. So there's also this homeschool activity that I found online at Lee and Lowe's site. That's a publisher, Lee and Lowe. And the activity is to make your own giving thanks book inspired by the picture book. So that could maybe be a fun thing to do and share if you're looking for other activities to to supplement your reading with, with the kids. So again, I've been talking about giving thanks, a Native American good morning message by Chief Jake Swamp, illustrated by Erwin Printup Jr. All right. Our next question is from Brooke, who says, I am trying, but it is hard. I live in a very red area and feel increasingly like I do not understand anyone around me or why they believe what they do. I'm trying to buck up against feeling so different and arm myself with some understanding so I can try and feel less like I'm fighting an enemy and more like I'm talking about differences in opinion based on experiences and personal philosophies and maybe make some progress. I realize that I study people through fiction. Can you recommend fiction where a character has conservative values and is likable and maybe even goes into how their values were formed? This is probably a really hard question, um, but I thought I would try. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Mm -hmm. I picked Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, and I can like feel some of you being like, mm, no, he's not conservative. <laughs> but like, this is, <laughs> I know it's like beloved by progressives everywhere, right? Including mm -hmm. myself. Um, but Gilead is about a like, 76-year-old pastor in iowa in the 50s so yes he is yeah. he's absolutely a conservative guy absolutely um john ames is the main character and he like i said is 76 he's been him and his um his family his father and grandfather were all pastors they've lived in iowa you know obviously for generations and a little bit and i think in kansas um and he lives in this tiny little town where he is a pastor his best friend is also a pastor reverend um and he marries a woman who is much younger than he is who comes into his church one day they have a child and when the book opens his son is seven years old and again he is 76 um and <sighs> he is writing a letter the whole book is a letter to this boy because he knows he's not going to live to see the kid out of his childhood and so he's writing a letter to his son the book is beautiful like it is a wonderful and just like elevating and inspiring transcendent book about nothing <laughs> like very little <laughs> happens except this pastor in iowa has a kid and like 
writes paragraphs about the sun gleaming off the hair of his child. And it's just so moving and beautiful. And the reason why I'm suggesting this one is because there, are, as the book goes along, you start to realize that he's got the, that Ames has some conflict with his best friend's son Jack, who is was named after him and is an, an adult, a young adult, like he's I think he's in his twenties. Um, and Jack is kind of troubled. He gets in trouble with the law. He's a bit of a ne'er do well. He has uh, he's involved in the civil rights movement, which is like a little questionable to everyone in their neighborhood. Um, and so. Ames is dealing with his feelings about that. Also, like, Jack comes around his young wife, like, a lot. And what is that about? And there's just, you know, Mm. it's just a lot of, like, "Mm." so you can start to see as the book goes on this kind of tension that this aging pastor in the Midwest in the 50s has about the way that the world is changing around him in ways that, like, you know, a reader like myself, and and I assume most of us, are like, really? Could you please get over it? Like, oh my god, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> so he he's like an old-fashioned dude, right? He's an old-fashioned dude who's a very devout Christian in a part of the country where civil rights still was, like, raising eyebrows. And at the same time, you will love him so deeply because he is really, really trying. Like, he is really trying to find ways that his faith can make him a more open-minded and loving person who like represents what he thinks Jesus is supposed to look like on the planet you know like he is going for it and sometimes he makes it and sometimes he doesn't so it's not you know he's not a trumper like this is not a book about someone who has voted for Donald Trump explaining the ways why or explaining why they did that in a way that's going to make you sympathize with them that's not what this is but it is about somebody who is coming from a place that you maybe don't relate to and um is doing so because he's trying to be a good person, which I think is like maybe a place to start if you're trying to get more empathetic with people who vote the way that Trump people vote now. Um, So that's Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Well, I definitely (laughs) struggled with this one because I definitely do not seek out these books necessarily. So I went out on a bit of a limb and I'm going to recommend The Sellout. And this is by Paul Beatty which also comes with a trigger warning for racially motivated violence. And if you can't read anything about police violence against black people, maybe skip this one. This is already sounding like it's opposite of your question, but just bear with me. So this is a book that descri- that's described as satire, but, you know, it, it's as real in some ways as it is absurd. And the book follows a black man who gets the nickname Sellout by being kind of crap to his own community. Not kind of, very much. He owns <laughs> he owns a slave and reintroduces segregation to his L.A. neighborhood, Dickens, which is, you know, as a major plot point, it's being, Dickens is being wiped off the map. So as a result of all of this, he ends up at the Supreme Court for a race trial, thanks to his, to all of these actions and these terrible ideas he has that he actually commits to action so this is a book that covers a lot and it makes mockery of a lot of things that still exist in some conversations in some namely conservative conversations and i mean we're talking again about segregation with a certain supreme court nominee so (laughs) the book examines the constitution it confronts race and puts stereotypes involving things like watermelons and marijuana front and center so that you can't look away from them. Now, I don't know if the main character, Mia's his last name, 
I don't know if he's likable in the way you're looking for, but I would not be surprised. And I have seen him described as likable and affable. So there's this sort of breeziness about the terrible things he's doing. And I thought of this book because it uses humor to discuss topics you would be really hard pressed to imagine could be discussed in a humorous tone. And it approaches problematic dialogue and institutions and schools of thought in a really different way, namely not with vitriol necessarily, but with laughter. And I also think it's interesting and maybe applicable to your situation that the book talks about borders in a specific sort of way, not necessarily physical borders, though there are those too, but borders of culture and thought that exist within one region. And so in a situation where you are, where you are of one mind, you are living in a place where you're in a red state and it's difficult to to kind of go over those borders to figure out what on earth these people are thinking. Like, that <laughs> seems kind of applicable. Uh, but it's borders of perspective and upbringing and the like, I guess I'd say. And it also points to the absurdity of certain philosophies. And it does go into Mies' upbringing as well and how he came to be who he is, talking about his relationship with his father, who was this controversial soci sociologist who made his son a subject in these racially charged psychological studies. So there is some of like, how does somebody get to this place? Because it's a very difficult question to ask and it, it often has many answers. So I hope this book can give you something to work with. It sounds like you have your work cut out for you and I wish you the best. But mm. check out The Sellout by Paul Beatty and see what you think. All right, let's hear from our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. 
But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, next question. Oh, Sharifa. That's me. And this one's coming from Megan. Megan says, could you please recommend a book or multiple books that would serve someone wanting to become a copy editor or proofreader with no previous experience? Well, (laughs) shall I go? Sure. Okay. Well, for this one, I chose the only book I enjoyed reading back when my career first started to involve a lot more copy editing and proofreading. And back then, in ye olden days, this is a long time ago, the one recommendation I'd come across a million times was Strunk and White's Elements of Style, which is really boring and dry. I did not enjoy that book. It's not really meant to be read. It's very much a reference book. So I was desperate in my quest to find something that was actually fun. And then I found Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, The Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation by Lynn Truss. And I was well, I was really surprised to find myself enjoying a book about punctuation because it seems so like, who cares? Like, who wants to pick up a book about punctuation? And it's fairly obvious, I think, from the cover and the title that this book takes a more conversational, casual approach to teaching everything from basic punctuation to addressing some really common mistakes that happen. And as an editor, I can tell you that understanding punctuation rules is really nothing to sniff at. Even the most seasoned writers have bad punctuation habits. I have bad punctuation habits. Lots of people do. And I'm almost certain you're going to develop some pet peeves about punctuation misunderstandings in your time as a copy editor or proofreader. So Lynn Truss also works uh, worked as an editor And it's also worth noting that she's English, but I recall her pointing out when there were differences between UK and US standards, because there are some important distinctions there. And I will, I'll say that she can be a little less than charitable about American Mm. rules (laughs) and about people who misuse punctuation. She is taking it upon herself to defend proper use of punctuation. She is a self-described snob, and there is a lot of dry, really sharp-tongued English humor here, which I thought was funny because I didn't, you know, I took it with a grain of salt, I guess, but I I can see how it might be off-putting for some people. But I think that if you're a grammar and punctuation enthusiast, and I assume you must be at some level of nerdery to even pursue Mm. this sort of career, I think you might not take as much offense. I'm not sure. It's been a minute, as in like many years since I read this book. (laughs) I don't don't remember throwing it across the room or anything like that. So, uh, and the corrected, and, and she also corrected some of my own miseducation on punctuation that continues to be helpful to me today. So I think all that said, like, this is actually a really helpful book. And it covers some of the big tools of offense in punctuation, including commas and apostrophes and dashes. And it offers some really good examples, as well as some punctuation history for the history nerds out there. 
it really put everything, it put punctuation into perspective, I guess. So yeah, uh, I hope you gain something from this book with your copy editing and proofreading journey. You can check out Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, The Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation. Again, that's by Lynn Truss. All right, I picked uh, Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style by <laughs> Benjamin Dreyer. Dreyer? Dreyer. Um, so Benjamin is the, I don't is he still? Was or still is, I think he still is, Random House's copy chief. So he is the head of copy editing for a major publication or major, major publishing house. Um, and I picked this because he goes through... A lot of things that are similar to each shoots and leaves, like grammatical grammatical rules, punctuation rules, um, ways to edit, uh, you know, sentences to make them more clear and more stylistic. But he also includes a lot of insider baseball that I think, if you're trying to become a copy editor, would probably be like useful, if not useful, then at least very interesting to you. So, like, how did he become a copy editor? Um, it was not his, you know, career goal coming out of college. Uh, and then, how did he end up at Random House? And and I think it's really fascinating to copy edit uh people's fiction like other people's fiction because it's not just about you know errant commas or you forgot to capitalize this letter uh even though those things are important but copy editors also can remove words or add words or ask for changes that make a sentence clearer in in walking that line between you know the work of like your editor your the person who edits your book for narrative and and structure and all that and a copy editor who is supposed to just be making like the language clearer and more correct is actually really hard <laughs> it's quite difficult to not intrude upon an author or an editor's um sense of like ownership over a work uh but also you have to make it good like your your job to make it good and to make it clear and to make it readable um and as tight and uh you know well written as possible um, and so he's coming at it from that specific perspective it's not just a, gra a grammar and punctuation guide but also uh, a really interesting look at how somebody with his job does his job which mm. is probably going to be useful to you as you pursue that so that's Dreyer's English by Benjamin Dreyer 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 I don't know you know I follow I'm him on Dreyer. Twitter I, can't, I think it's Dreyer yes this is the second time I've done that on this, sh this episode <laughs> and I'm usually so good about this don't know what's happening. It's me. It's brain. my influence. Blame it on me. It's not you. It's this freaking puppy. I have done nothing all week except dog crap, <laughs> literal <laughs> and figurative. So my brain, I have like no bandwidth. Anyway, I'm not going to make excuses for it. I should have looked it up. I'm sorry. Okay. So next question is from Hillary. Two of my recent favorite books have been The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane by Lisa C. and Before We Visit the Goddess by Chitra Banerjee Diva Karuni. For me, these books were an exploration of complex mother daughter relationships embedded in the life stories of the mother, daughter, and granddaughter. I've loved learning about each individual woman, but in doing so, gaining greater understanding of her relationship with the other women, her, other women in her life. I'm looking for recommendations of similar books that provide life stories of women across generations and explore complex mother-daughter-granddaughter relationships. Okay, Sharifa, what you got? So I chose a book about the relationships between sisters as well as mothers and daughters and aunts and nieces, so sort of along those lines. And it's The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. And this story spans nearly half a century leading up to the 1990s, and it starts with two sisters, twins, Desiree and Stella. They live in the small town of Mallard, Louisiana. And the thing about Mallard is that it's a town that is specifically designed or was specifically formed or organized by its founder to promote the procreation of light-skinned black people. 
And Desiree and Stella can both pass, and in the vein of Nella Larson's classic, if you read it, Passing, this is a story of passing and the privilege gained through passing as well as the consequences. And you see how Stella leads this secret life as a white woman and how that affects her daily life as well as her relationship with blackness and identity. And you see Desiree, who makes very different choices. And the book also follows Jude, who's Desiree's daughter, who takes us into more contemporary times. And Desiree is a dark-skinned black woman who moves far from the town where she was gawked at and othered to live in LA. So this is one of few books, I guess, that explores colorism within the black community by looking at Mallard and how Mallard reacts to somebody like Jude. So Jude leaves, as anybody would. She moves away from Mallard and she goes to LA and she makes this life for herself that looks very, very different from her mother's life. And she has a very different relationship with blackness and identity. And so then when Desiree finds out, or when Jude, sorry, finds out uh, she has an aunt that she never knew about, these three distant worlds collide. So the perspective shifts throughout the book. You have Stella's life uh, where she's passing. You have Desiree's life where she stayed in Mallard. And then you have Jude, the daughter's life in LA as a dark-skinned black woman. So you don't finish with one character or another. You keep following them and you see how each life affects the other in both small and significant ways until the end of the story. So I also enjoy stories that span generations and show us how the choices of those who came before may affect future generations. And I also find stories of the women in a family particularly poignant. And The Vanishing Half, I think, does a good job of showing these contrasting perspectives and lives and bringing us from, I think, the 19, I think it's the 1940s or early 1950s to the 1990s. It's kind of like peeling an onion in that you don't stop learning about these characters as the book progresses. And it's also a bit of a page. It's not, it's actually quite a page turner. I had mm-hmm. to know, yeah, I just had to know how things were going to end. And I was in kind of shocked horror following Stella's life and I had to know where she would go and what she would conclude I had to know that Jude would find her joy so it makes for a really compelling read and it's actually been picked up for an HBO limited series so if you want to read it before the adaptation comes out who knows when because COVID but you know (laughs) if you want to read it beforehand this is a good time I suppose so again I've been talking about The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett I feel like watching that on TV would just be the most stressful So experience. stressful. <laughs> like just, ah, 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 I, I would just, not be able the to The grimace emoji. <laughs> ah, just the grimace emoji. Okay. Um, what did I pick? Who knows? And now I'm just thinking about the vanishing half on television. Um, I picked Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune by Roselle Lim. And this is a bit magical realisty kind of which i appreciated so it's about a woman named natalie obviously natalie Tan, um who <laughs> returns back to her uh san francisco apartment in chinatown where she grew up her mother uh has recently died so she's come home and her and her mother had not spoken for seven years since natalie decided she wanted to be a chef um and her mother was super not supportive of that idea uh and so natalie leaves she like travels the world goes uh goes off to learn how to be a chef her mother is agoraphobic, uh, doesn't leave the house, 
Um, and so, you know, never came to see her anything and Natalie never came home. So when her mother, you know, dies, she comes back and is really surprised to see the state of her neighborhood, this neighborhood where she grew up in Chinatown that is becoming really quickly gentrified. There's a um, like an LOL sob kind of villain in this book in the mm-hmm. form of like this really perky white lady real estate agent who keeps oh stopping by all these. I know she keeps coming to all the businesses and trying to get them to sell. She's terrible. Um, and there is... Uh, a kind of surprise waiting for Natalie in that she has inherited her grandmother's restaurant. Now her and her mother lived above her grandmother's restaurant. And so, you know, that adds an extra layer to like, why won't you let me be a chef? It's a family business. Um, and her grandmother has died, you know, a long time before uh, the the events of the book. And so the restaurant has been sitting kind of vacant. And so she wants to stay and reopen it and kind of help revitalize the neighborhood um and so there's a neighborhood seer who like reads you know the restaurant's fortune and tells natalie that she's got to make three recipes from her grandmother's cookbook that will help three of her neighbors in some way and then help revitalize the neighborhood in that way and then her restaurant will be successful so she goes off to do that she kind of like there's a little element of like busybodiness in it that i thought was really fun (laughs) she gets it like really involved in everybody's problems (laughs) like tries to fix them with food there's recipes in the book which i love that in a book it's so tasty um and so uh, there's also like a little budding romance that happens um but it really is about her kind of exploring her relationship with her mother and trying and like she you know in going through her mother's things after her mother dies finds journals and you know artifacts and things that help kind of reveal how her mother came to be agoraphobic and why she was so resistant to the idea of Natalie becoming a chef Um, and she learns more about her family history so it is really a book about a mother a really complex and at times very conflict driven intense mother-daughter relationship that Natalie has to not has to but like learns to accept and come to terms with and find peace in um as she decides to open this restaurant and kind of carry on her family and tradition so that's natalie tan's book of luck and fortune should be a rule that every foodie fiction book should come with at least one recipe this is i agree this is what i say (laughs) i'm also like i tend to like reread the recipe parts a couple times like oh yeah okay i'm like super into this plot but let's talk more about this dumpling yeah (laughs) i don't blame you (laughs) all right well last question comes to us from mave and mave says after a recent encounter with missionaries and hopping down a youtube rabbit hole i've become fascinated with stories about people leaving conservative restrictive religious sects i've read a few memoirs nonfiction books on the subject and a great young adult novel devoted by Jennifer Matthew. And I would love to read more YA fiction about young people chafing against restrictive religious backgrounds, confronting family expectations, and weighing the risks of leaving their faith. I generally prefer to read about female, LGBTQ+, and or characters of color, ideally own voices, and... Yeah, she adores the show. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, well, I can get us started. And for this one, I chose The Miseducation of Cameron Post by Emily M. Danforth. And this is specifically an answer to your search for stories about women and the LGBTQ plus community. This book does come with a trigger warning for self-harm and attempted suicide. And this is a story about a young woman living under restrictive conditions in a conservative and religious household with her aunt and grandmother. And it's set in Miles City, Montana. So the story begins 
as Cameron's life experiences a huge shift when her parents die in an accident. And they die while she's kissing a girl. So at this point, she's about 12 years old when this happens. And as a member of this new, newly formed household where her aunt moves in with her grandma and lives with them, Cameron has to go to this new church and also participate in its youth group. And it's there that she meets this girl and starts to sort of explore her sexuality. And then when her family realizes what she's been up to, she gets sent to God's Promise, which is a conversion therapy school that's run by their reverend. And at God's Promise, she makes these, she makes friends with other kids who are going through it. And she has this coming of age, seeing the harm conversion does and finding acceptance among her peers. And I will say that there is a character of color in this book, Adam, but I recommend seeking out, as you said, you were interested in Own Voices books, seeking out Own Voices books on the subject, since there has been some criticism about how that character who's Native American is represented. So that's my, my caveat here. And this book made a really big impact when it was released, since it was one of not very many books about queer teens exploring their sexuality and figuring out their identity. Like, I don't remember anything like this in my youth. So I know that even it's kind of, it's kind of sad that it, it came out in 2012 and it was still a big deal. And it just continues to be a, a big read and something people, particularly younger readers, turn to. And of course, it even got an adaptation a couple of years ago, you might already know. So at this point, I think it's considered something of a classic of queer YA lit. And I think it probably has what you're looking for. So again, that was The Miseducation of Cameron Posts by Emily M. Danforth. Cosine. Love that yeah. Book. <laughs> okay. I picked The Chosen One by Carol Lynch Williams, which came out in 2009. It's a bit of an older pick, but it won so many things. It won like the ALA Best Book for Young Adults and the also book, uh, Quick Pick Book and all of these. Um, just it's so fast paced and such a such a great read. So this is about a 13 year old girl named Kyra. And she has grown up in a polygamist, very isolated community. Her father has three wives. She's got 12. I think 19 brothers and sisters and she's like into it you know like she has a to her very happy childhood her parents are kind to her she gets along with her siblings all of them don't know how she keeps track of them but whatever <laughs> um, and um, she like doesn't question it too much she's 13 so how many questions do you expect her to have really um, it, but she does break a few rules and they turn out to be vital the first one is that she visits a county mobile library on wheels that's run by a very nice man named Patrick and she reads books that her sect leader explicitly calls forbidden. And so she does that. And then she also secretly develops feelings for a boy named Joshua and like meets with him who is her age. And it's a boy that she would like to choose for herself were she to ever get married. But then the prophet of her sect decides that she has to marry her 60 year old uncle mm. and he already has six wives <laughs> and um she is as i said 13 so she has to decide what to do about that and the you know stakes are very high if she refuses to do it um she's going to face violence she's going to face losing her family forever she'll be excommunicated um at the same time it is very hard to leave uh, when you're that age, when you're female, 
uh, when you're in a cult like that, it's very hard to leave, not just mentally and emotionally, but like literally where she has no resources. She has no outside connection. She has no money of her own. How is she supposed to avoid this situation? And so she spends the book deciding what to do. And it's really, really fast paced. You know, the the guy, Patrick, who runs the library on wheels um, plays a part. And then this boy, Joshua, plays a part um, and she makes her choice and then, you know, lives with it. So it, ah, you know, it's one of those things where you're just like so tense <laughs> the yeah. whole time because you know what's uh, what's coming for her if she doesn't get out even if she doesn't fully understand the implications though she does i mean she she does not under any circumstances want to marry a 60 year old uncle with six wives like that is not a thing that she wants for herself mm-hmm. um but you know she's 13 and does not fully grasp like the the horror really of the situation that she's found herself in. And so through through books and friendly outsiders and her own strength of will, she decides what she's going to do and uses her voice to do it. So yeah, that's what I picked. <laughs> I don't know how to close that. Ooh. So that's The Chosen One by Carol Lynch Williams. I know the stakes are high. In like all of these books, the stakes are high. And that is our show. Yay. That was fun. My dog did not scream a single time. It's a I miracle. <laughs> I know. He's been in his crate. For those of you who don't follow me on Instagram, this is all I've been posting. I got a puppy. I have an eight-week-old Rottweiler who hates being in his crate. And he's been in his crate in this office this entire time, sleeping through me, yelling really loudly. I mean, I guess he just needs to get used to that because that's what life is like here. <laughs> just me yelling loudly all the time. Um, and anyway, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you, Sharifa, for subbing in for Jen today. It's yeah. very helpful. So nice to have you. Um, go listen to SFF. Yeah, all of you. Thanks. Yes. Um, thank you for listening. <laughs> please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Where can the people find you, Sharifa? They can find me on Instagram at Zainab Williams. That's S-Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.